Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever or whenever you are, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sports Crunch with D. Crom. I'm your host, David Cromelo. Last week, the NFL Management Council Executive Committee unanimously rejected a request by general managers to delay the 2020 NFL draft. Thus, even amidst the uncertainty of whether there will be any more sporting events in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the NFL's marquee offseason event will likely proceed on time, barring something extremely drastic. And in that spirit, we continue our annual Dash to the Draft positional preview series here on Sports Crunch with a look at the 2020 quarterback class. And what better person is there to help us analyze these future NFL signal callers than the quarterback guru himself, Mark Schofield. Mark dissects quarterback film for USA Today's The Touchdown Wire. It's great to have you back on the program, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing well, David. Great to be back with you. Good to catch up. We had a chance to do a little bit of that down in Mobile for the Senior Bowl, but it's great to be on the pod with you again. Oh, absolutely. Can't think of a better way to uh, spend the time amidst this uh, uncertain uh, period in time. Yeah. I mean, look, we were talking about it a little bit before the show, uh, before we hit record. You know, these are uncertain times. We know there will be a draft. We don't know beyond that what there will be in terms of a training camp, OTAs, rookie mini camps in the season. But, you know, in, in this uncertain time it is nice to have free agency it is nice to have the draft because it gives us something to talk about something to focus our attention on something to take us away whether it's for 30 minutes 40 minutes an hour of the day or whatever um from everything that's going on so I, i'm excited and glad in a sense that the nfl went ahead with free agency and i'm glad that they are you know going ahead with the draft because it gives us something in a way of a distraction i'd say um from the real world right now Oh, absolutely. And I definitely understand the side of the argument to uh, push back the draft a little bit. But at the same time, I think many of these prospects, whether there is a 2020 season or not, they want certainty now as to where they'll be living and working for the foreseeable future. Because of this pandemic, even if it lasts for the rest of 2020, it's not going to last indefinitely. And uh, they're uh, at barring... uh, something extremely catastrophic, uh, sports should definitely return sometime in 2021 based on the precedence of past major pandemics like the Spanish flu, uh, so to speak, and given that we're more in advanced medical times, I would definitely anticipate a 2021 season as opposed to a uh, 2020 season. So a lot of these prospects right now are probably um, uh, have Goodell's ear and they and them and their agents want some sort of finality to this amidst all this uncertainty. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, they're sort of stuck in limbo. You know, they're waiting for a draft. Most of these guys with agents, they can't go back to school and or they've graduated, so they can't, they don't have that as an option. And they'd like to have some sort of sense of what's going to happen. And so I think, look, having the draft, it's going to make, you know, give us something to do. It's going to make life easier on those guys and give us at least a sense that there is some sort of light at the end of the tunnel here. Oh, absolutely. And now um, let's go back to football for a moment and talk about this uh, quarterback class, starting with Joe Burrow. And while there has been some smoke here and there to suggest otherwise, most all signs still point to the Bengals making Joe Burrow the first overall pick in the draft. Some believe Burrow to be the best quarterback prospect since Andrew Luck. And regardless of whether or not you share that view, what makes Joe Burrow such a special prospect? You know, I I think it's important to remember that the rise of Burrow, David, is real. When I was, when everybody was sort of watching this past summer, I did a couple of pieces on it for the Matt Walden rookie scouting portfolio, mattwaldenrsp.com, and I thought, look, there's something with this kid. He's got some nice traits. He throws with anticipation. I like the way he reads the middle of the field. He's got some questions he'll need to answer. But even in that sort of rosy view of him, I thought he was a guy that 
if things broke well for him, might get his senior bowl invite and play himself into maybe a late day two pick at best. You know, but he certainly blew the doors off this season. You know, setting career records at LSU, setting you know single season records, efficiency ratings, and touchdowns per season. And what's important to understand about what he did this year is that it's not just numbers, it's not just production, it's the way he went about doing it. It's the accuracy to all levels of the field. It's the poise in the pocket. It's the mobility in the pocket. It's the ability to extend plays while keeping his eyes downfield. It's the ability to make anticipation throws better than anybody in this class and perhaps better than anybody in recent history coming out of college. It's the footwork. One of the things that I love about Joe Burrow, and there's so many different things we can talk about when it comes to his game, but one of the things I don't think people talk about enough is how well he keeps his feet underneath him and ready to throw. Whether it's moving around in the pocket, whether it's executing a ball fake or a mesh on an RPO design, even working to his left, how quickly he snaps those feet back underneath him, how quickly when he works through progressions, which he does very well, he keeps those feet fluid underneath him as he works from read to read to read, so he's always in position to throw. And the other thing to remember with this offense, a lot of people might say, look, he wasn't that good two years ago. It was really Joe Brady's offense that made him good. One of the things that Joe Brady's offense asked him to do was be the sixth man in protection. They ran, I think, an overwhelming number. I don't know the exact number in front of me, but it was something like 73 or 83% of their plays were a five-man protection scheme, which means he is, in essence, that sixth man in protection. If there's an unblocked blitzer, if there's somebody coming from a slot, he has to either block them by avoiding them with his feet or making a quick, hot read decision and throw. That's going to help him when he gets to the National Football League because that gets to his processing speed, his ability to diagnose plays as a quarterback. So you put that package together, like you said, it's almost as complete a quarterback prospect as you can find. Are there flaws? A couple you can nitpick about the upper end arm talent or the lack thereof. I don't think he has the best arm in this class. You might be able to say that, yeah, there are situations where he took the sack when he shouldn't have. But overall, this is as clean as it gets as a quarterback evaluation. Oh, yeah. Dan Orlovsky of ESPN. And please, ESPN, uh, if uh, the draft does occur on, on schedule, April 23rd to 25th, please make sure he and Lewis Riddick do most of the talking on your broadcast, please, to m- make me want to change from NFL Network. So, uh, But okay. he, he brought up one of the key points you brought up is uh, Burrow masks a lot of those um, um, athletic limitations, in air quote, with his elite processing speed and that elite processing speed is what characterizes guys like uh, Tom Brady and Drew Brees and Joe Montana and Peyton Manning um, all uh, quarterbacks who didn't necessarily have the best arm talent but were able to make up for it with such elite and fast intelligence on the field and that if you have that level of intelligence in the National Football League to play quarterback sky's the limit. Yeah, exactly right. It's one of the critical components to play in the position is processing speed. And when you remember that the offense he was running under Joe Brady is an NFL offense, it's heavily influenced by Sean Payton's offense. You know, Sean Payton was on Twitter over the weekend drawing up some of his favorite plays and people immediately went to the LSU tape and they were finding examples of Burrow running New Orleans Saints passing concepts. Like he's an NFL ready quarterback. And that's one of the things that, you know, among all the traits that you could put together for him, that's yet one more reason why he's at the top of this draft board. Absolutely. And if it weren't for injuries, Tua Tagovailoa would have probably still been in the conversation to be the first overall pick in this year's draft. But health aside, 
The main concern some people have about Tagovailoa is that some people believe he was more of the product of the weapons around him in Alabama and not the other way around. Why or why not? Is that a reasonable concern? I think it's a fair concern, David, in some respects. But it's also you have to, you know, alter it into the realm of the quarterback himself and his evaluation process. And why I think it's important to note the talent that he had around him is that at times when you watch Tua on film, when you see he only threw three interceptions this year, one against Tennessee, which was a play where he just tried to do too much. And I'll talk about that in a second. One against Texas A&M, one against LSU. He at times fell into this trap of assuming too much. He would just assume that, you know, he had the coverage read right because everybody around him was so talented they could bail him out. He didn't have to verify the coverage after he gave it a cursory glance after the snap. And he fell into the trap of assuming what he was seeing was the right thing. I'll give you an example. The interception I mentioned against Texas A&M, it's a red zone play. They're running mirrored Haas juke where you've got the hitch routes on the outside, the seam routes from the slot guys, and that juke option route from the number three receiver, in this case, to the right. He assumes in the too high coverage scheme that the backside receiver, I mean the backside safety, in this case the receiver to his the safety to his right, is going to stay over the top of that seam route on the backside of the play. So he sees that after the snap and doesn't look to confirm it at any other time. That safety actually reads his eyes, sees that he's throwing the opposite seam route and jumps it. That's an example of a quarterback sort of assuming that what he's seeing at the start of a play is what's going to be there at the end of it. Same thing, the interception against LSU. He assumes that they're in two man underneath, but they're in basically a two zone. Patrick Queen, the linebacker, just reads his eyes. And so what happened because of the talent around him is he fell into that trap of thinking, I can just assume what's going on because of all the weapons we have, teams are going to have to play us straight. They're not going to have guys that are able to read my eyes or freelance. That's when he got into trouble. That coupled with his reliance on his legs, his plan B is often to create with his legs. If that primary read isn't open, he'll pull the football down and try to create outside of the pocket, which he does very well, but it does get him into trouble at times. That is the double-edged sort of duality of a quarterback like Tua, like, say, a Carson Wentz, these guys that will create with their legs and are willing to you know, play to the whistle, it creates problems when you have tried this hero ball, when you make some throws you shouldn't, rather than just throwing it away. And it leads to injuries. And that leads us to sort of the hip injury and the lower body injury history with Tua. Now, I'm not a doctor. I know lawyers tend to play one. In real life, we try to think that we can read a medical history and diagnose people, but I was a bad lawyer. I was even worse at reading medical records, so I can't tell you the prognosis on Tua's hip injury, but it is something to consider, and it is something to consider in this real world that we're living in. How comfortable will a team be drafting Tua, given the fact they might not be able to meet with him? They might not have their own doctors with a medical on them. Maybe they got it done in the combine, maybe not, but even then, things have changed since then. Eric Edholm of Yahoo just dropped a very interesting piece talking with to his team, you know, how they're handling this situation. But it is sort of something to consider given everything that's going on right now. Oh, absolutely. I spoke about the same thing with Connor Rogers a couple days ago about how uh, the fact that because of COVID-19, teams aren't going to get a medical recheck on players like Tua. That could make a lot of teams hesitate to take him. And uh, although uh, Connor still thinks Tua doesn't fall uh, by the Chargers at six, uh, you never say never in this environment. Yeah, I mean, he could go anywhere, I think, from 2 to 10. Like, you could see a scenario where a team just gives Washington the keys to the castle. They want to go get him, and so they go get him. You could see a, a 
situation where he falls. I mean, it's very uncertain with Tua. I think on the field, there are things that he does extremely well. I think he's an ideal fit in sort of a modern West Coast type offense. Like before the Teddy Bridgewater sign, and I thought, look, if I'm Carolina, I'm happy drafting Tua. Maybe he redshirts for a year because you're worried about the hip, but I think he'd be great in Joe Brady's offense with all the RPO elements that they're going to be running. I think he'd be almost ideal in that setting. But the medicals are a big concern. Yes, but let's uh, talk about the tape again with Tua. And uh, while a lot of people do have uh, that reasonable concern with Tua of him being more of the product of the weapons and the system around him as opposed to the other way around, um, people cannot discount that national championship game uh, in, in tw- January 2018 where Tua displayed one of the key intangibles that you must have to succeed as a quarterback in the NFL, and that is the short memory. We saw it with Patrick Mahomes this playoff season, and you saw it with Tua in the national championship game where uh, Tua, um, one play in overtime, he gets sacked for a 20-yard loss, but he immediately forgets about it, and on the next play throws the touchdown to win the whole thing. So that is uh, an aspect that you can't ignore about Tua either can you no I don't I don't think you can and you know one of the things that I love about Tua is sort of that competitive toughness angle from him now it does get him into trouble like we just talked about but that short memory is massive a couple of different positions in in the game of football quarterback for one and quarterback certainly for another you have to forget mistakes learn from them but don't dwell on them now, an interesting thing with Tua is there are times when he doesn't challenge windows downfield. And I don't know if that's you know, something he was coached away from doing. I don't know if that's his own sort of understanding of his limitations. Like he's not, you know, it doesn't have a powerful arm. Like he's not a great fit, I think, um, for a Bruce Arians type of system. Although you might wonder about Tom Brady and that kind of system. But I, don't, I, I think that there are some limitations to him that might make teams hesitant. But for the teams that are going to be picking near the top of the board, the Miamis, the Chargers, the you know Panthers, if they want to go quarterback, I think that he would be an ideal fit in their offense. Oh, he most certainly would. I definitely agree with you there. And uh, let's talk about another quarterback prospect now, and that is one of the guys we saw down in Mobile, Justin Herbert of Oregon. And there is still some people who believe that Justin Herbert uh, might be the second quarterback off the board as opposed to Tua. However, uh, Justin Herbert didn't show the growth most wanted to see during his senior year in Eugene. But that said, Jordan Reed of the Draft Network, a good friend of the pod and one of the brightest football minds out there, he believes that the offensive system the the Ducks ran last year wasn't designed to feature some of the main components of Herbert's uh, athletic toolkit. Hence, uh, he was somewhat miscast in that scheme, according to Reed. And if uh, Herbert can land in the right place, do you think there's a good chance we could see the progress most wanted last year during his rookie season? I think so. And, you know, Jordan's absolutely right about the Oregon offense. It was not a system that showcased what he can do. I mean, the offense was, in some sense, very similar to that old Baylor offense under Art Bryles, where a lot of stuff to the boundary, a lot of hitch routes, a lot of bubbles and tunnels. Like, it didn't ask him to do much from a conceptual standpoint. There were only a handful of examples when I was charting him, you know, of him truly having to make you know, progression reads and attack between the hash marks. Most of his stuff was towards the boundary, you know, which is why the senior bowl and that opportunity to play for Zach Taylor in that Bengals system was a huge opportunity for him. And he showed the ability to sort of read the middle of the field, but there are still limitations when you watch him on film, when he doesn't know how to sort of attack between the hash marks, he doesn't know how to sort of feather or layer throws, you know, in that area of the field, in the intermediate area of the field. And that's where, 
most NFL offenses are focused right now, you know, because of the coverages that, that they're going to be seeing. Now, he has an incredible arm. And one of the things that I love about Justin Herbert, even with some of those limitations, is that he is so good and adept at feeling and understanding and reading leverage defenders and attacking as a result. And one of my favorite throws, there are always throws as I work through a quarterback class that stick with me. He had a throw his junior year against Cal. It was a road game where he had a, a vertical route, a switch vertical concept to the left. Ball was on the right hash mark. And the slot receiver worked towards the boundary. They didn't switch the coverage. So the inside defender was working from the middle of the field to the, to the outside. And David, he threw basically a back shoulder throw about 50 yards downfield or so on a rope. And he read the leverage of the defender incredibly well. And that's stuff that, you know, sometimes we get caught up on reading the middle of the field and reading coverages. That type of stuff is going to work in the NFL. And so I think that while the offense didn't do him favors, there's still stuff on tape that gets you excited. I, I know people look at him and they say, look, he had some you know, ball placement issues at times, and sometimes he freezes when the first couple of reads aren't there. But that type of leverage read is going to work for him in the NFL. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see where Justin Herbert goes and how he performs in the NFL. A very, very intriguing prospect. But arguably the biggest wild card in this quarterback class is Jordan Love, another guy who we saw down in Mobile. Love may have the highest ceiling of any of the quarterbacks, yet he may have the lowest floor as well. In 2018, he had a 32-6 to touchdown-interception ratio. Yet last year, that ratio drastically fell to just 20-17. to What factors do you think were mostly to blame for his regression last year? Well, I think, interestingly enough, and look, Jordan Love has done a great job both at the Combine and at the Senior Bowl talking about those interceptions, talking about those 17 learning you know, mistakes, you know, learning opportunities that he had. He said all the right things about him. But if you look at that 2018 tape, there are still examples of him making decisions and throws that maybe should have been added to that interception tally. And so, you know, I, I think the the numbers are a bit misleading. I think it's one of those instances where you dive into the film and you see, oh, well, he was still making some poor reads and some poor throws. I think the thing with love that is going to get him drafted is the ceiling. You know, I think you're absolutely right, David. He's a high ceiling, low floor, boom bust type of player. I think the ceiling is going to get people excited. Now, if it were me, I think he's more of a late first round kind of guy. I do think he goes in the top 10 or maybe the top 15. You know, free agency has kind of changed the quarterback market a bit. Now, I think teams are going to look at him and they're going to see Josh Allen. You know, they're going to see a guy, huge arm, some athleticism, you know, playing in the Mountain West. Maybe he didn't have the best talent around him, but can make some splash throws. I mean, he completed 50% of his passes down at Death Valley against LSU. But if you watch that game, like he had a throw, a post route to his tight end early in that game that should have been six. It was dropped. He had a number of throws in that game that were dropped. Teams are going to look at that and say, yeah, that's the talent or lack thereof around him. He's not going to have talent like that when he gets into our system. So we can take a flyer and bet on him hitting that ceiling in our system. We can bet on the boom in our system. And so that's going to get him moved up draft boards. But I think of, out of the four quarterbacks we've talked about so far, He's the guy that I'm most hesitant to put on the field right away. I think he's somebody that ideally gets drafted to a team where there's a track record, a proven track record of quarterback development. I thought before they traded out of 13, Indianapolis was ideal for him. Frank Reich, 
You know, he was part of the team that sort of developed Carson Wentz. He was his quarterback coach. There's a proven track record of getting quarterback development right. Now, whether Indianapolis wants to package 34 and 44 to move up to get him, and if they could do that, are they willing? I don't know. But I still think Indianapolis is sort of an ideal scenario for him. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, he could definitely still be had uh, in the early second where Indianapolis is first scheduled to pick or if they have to trade up into the late first, they have the capital to do so. So that could be his landing spot at the end of the day. But uh, Jordan Love, another thing I found interesting about him was that he decided to declare uh, for the NFL draft when I personally believe that he should have stayed in college and just transferred to a larger program. However, with the COVID-19 uh, rearing its ugly head right now and only just beginning in the United States, uh, his decision to declare for the NFL draft is looking wiser by the minute uh, given the uncertainties of over this football season at all levels. But did you initially think he should have stayed in college and transferred to a larger program? Yeah, this is it's a great question, David. It's one that I've sort of gone back and forth on. I think you know, if he had transferred to, say, like an SEC school, like maybe he had followed Mike Leach to Mississippi State, you know, rather than KJ Costello, that might have been an opportunity to say, OK, now I've got some talent around me and I'm playing, you know, upper tier talent week in and week out playing an SEC schedule. That might have been a chance for him to sort of establish that, OK, you know, I made 17 mistakes last year. I'm not going to do that. Or if I make some mistakes, it's against elite level competition. And so, you know, if he had gone to like that big program, program, I think it might have been an opportunity for him to sort of showcase what he can do. You know, and I might have appreciated that from an evaluation standpoint. But I certainly understand his decision. He's looking at guys like Josh Allen and others that, you know, got drafted based on the raw traits. And he's saying, look, I'm up there with those guys. Josh Allen went seventh. Why can't I? And Josh Allen went seventh in a, you know, perhaps deeper or at least more top-heavy quarterback class. There are questions about, you know, some of these guys that are going to go in the first round that maybe, you know, weren't there in 2018. And so I understand why he ultimately made the decision. That he did. I would have loved it from a sort of evaluation standpoint, but I think he probably made the right decision for him. Uh, absolutely. And uh, that correct the correctness of that decision, as I just said, is uh, further illuminated by the covid 19 pandemic and another intriguing prospect that is a mystery at the NFL level is obviously Jalen Hurts. Uh, Jalen Hurts uh, from Alabama and Oklahoma. We saw him uh, down at the Senior Bowl uh, in Mobile, and uh, but he he's very gifted, but he's not the athletic freak Lamar Jackson is, and he's also even farther behind as a passer than Lamar Jackson was coming out of college. Thus, some scouts anonymously told reporters that they want him to switch to running back or something like that in order to succeed at the pro level. Do you think Jalen Hurts is a future under center in the National Football League? I do. And it wasn't something that I was expecting to con conclude. You know, when I got done sort of studying him as we pre prepared for the senior bowl, you know, I, I thought he was more sort of that early day three type of guy that you would take a flyer on. I, I was worried about his mechanics. Uh, I thought that his mechanical inconsistencies and the big loop and throw in motion was something he was going to really have to fix. And I'm usually somebody of the mind that mechanics don't matter until they matter. You know, what I mean by that is, you know, if the ball is getting where it needs to be, when it needs to be there, I don't care how you do it. But if the ball is late or throws are missed because of mechanics, then it's a problem. And there were times when he was late. But then we get down to Mobile and you see the mechanics starting to tighten up. Nice, clean mechanics, and he's throwing the deep ball extremely well, which is something that he had in scramble drill situations, but he was even better, you know, throwing that deep ball from the pocket with touch, drop it in the bucket at times. And as he's gone through this process and as we've gotten closer to the draft, you know, he's risen up draft boards for a reason. You know, we should have expected that with, you know, we know where he's going to check boxes. 
in that hotel suite, looking general managers in the eye. You know, the character part of the process is going to be a huge mark in his favor. We saw how he handled the Alabama situation. You know, he stays, he helps Tua, then he transfers, you know, at the end of his college career, becomes an immediate leader, you know, in that Oklahoma program. You know, we knew he was going to check that part of the process, but the mechanics have been better. I'm very intrigued by the fact that I think he's more scheme diverse than some of the quarterbacks in that second tier. Like when you get to the end of the second tier, the Eason, the Love, the Herbert, the Fromm, the Hurts tier of quarterbacks, David, I think he's a more scheme diverse quarterback than, say, a Jake Fromm. And so I can certainly envision a scenario where he comes off the board in this draft before Jake Fromm, who I think some teams are going to love, some teams might not. And so when I see Jalen Hurts, I'm intrigued by the idea of having a downfield passing game. I could also see him working in sort of more of a spread type of system that works in some more RPO and play action type elements. And I'm very intrigued by Jalen Hurts at the next level. Oh, I am too. It's definitely going to be very exciting to see what he can do in the NFL that is continuously learning how to adapt to quarterbacks with Hurts' skill set. And you mentioned Jake Fromm. Fromm out of Georgia was another quarterback who slid down draft boards during the 2019 season because with a partially due to a downgrade supporting cast in the passing game, Fromm's limitations, his lack of size, uh, desired arm, lack of desired arm talent, etc., were, were brought to light more than often last year. However, many believe teams will still want him because of his football IQ and his ability to do most of the basic things right. I'm not saying he's Joe Burrow, but he's that kind of quarterback that is, uh, for the most part, uh, fundamentally sound and football smart despite those limitations. Do you think Jake Fromm can uh, have a career that takes the path of like Kirk Cousins if he lands in the right situation? I think that's sort of a... Uh good sort of path for him and I do think David that there are I've identified four there are others but they won't need a quarterback in this draft but there are I think four teams where I think Jake Fromm could come in and really sort of compete early in his career I think Indianapolis is one I think that sort of west coast offense would be an ideal situation for him I think Tennessee would be a situation where he would be successful a lot of play action stuff a lot of off deep shots off of play action working under center you know, that sort of run game focused offense would be something similar to what he was running at Georgia. I think New England would be a situation where he could function as a quarterback early in his career. What might scare the Patriots off? They are known to value hand size at the position because you're playing outdoor in the elements. Foxborough in December. You need the hand size there. Brady checked that box. I think he had close to 10 inch hands. From came in under nine inches. That's going to be a thing they will look at. And I did think before the Nick Foles move, Fromm could have walked into Matt Nagy's offense and run it better than Mitchell Trubisky. I, I was fascinated by the idea of Jake Fromm in the second round for the Bears. Now, they've gone in the Foles direction, so I don't think they drafted quarterback, but that would have been a good set, set in for him. What teams are going to love about Fromm, he's not going to make you look stupid. He's going to like go by the book, check the boxes, run the progressions, get the ball out on time and in rhythm. He's not going to make splash plays. He's not going to really sort of move the needle as far as a downfield passer. That's not his game. But if you need somebody to run sort of a, a West Coast offense with some play action elements and some shot plays downfield off of that, he could work. There will be quarterback coaches or offensive coordinators or general managers or head coaches that won't have him on their board. I would be stunned if Bruce Arians has Jake Fromm on his quarterback board or say in the top 10 of his quarterback board. But in some settings, he could have sort of a Cousins-like Derek Carr-like career. 
Oh, he most certainly can, and he is Mark Schofield, ladies and gentlemen, quarterback guru extraordinaire for USA Today's The Touchdown Wire. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. And Mark, thank you so much once again for joining us. Your insight and knowledge is truly second to none when it comes to quarterbacks. But before you go, um, you were alluding to, to, to some of these uh, earlier in the show, but I want to go over some more of the best team fits for these quarterback prospects. And let's think in terms of realistic uh fits of teams that need both a short and long-term solution starting with Joe Burrow best team fit for Joe Burrow in your opinion I mean I, I do think it is the Bengals I mean you you look at his accuracy the space and concepts that they're going to be running under Zach Taylor it's going to be very similar to you know obviously what they ran last year but he's come he's from that Sean McVay sort of coaching treat so you're going to see space and concepts creative use of space stretching the defense sideline to sideline and deep I think Burrow's fit in Cincinnati is just fine what about Tua Tagovailoa you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, I did think sort of like Brady's, Joe Brady's Carolina Panthers offense was an ideal fit. I think with Chan Gailey coming to Miami, I think that there's that sort of like West Coast influence spread type offense. Chan Gailey was one of the first to sort of bring the spread to the NFL. I think that the Miami Dolphins would be a good fit for what two is going to be as an NFL quarterback. What about Justin Herbert? Herbert's interesting. You know, you could make a similar case that the Chan Gailey offense would work. But I do think the Chargers, because their new offensive coordinator, while he's got some spread elements, some RPO type stuff, you know, he cut his teeth under Rod Chudzinski, who's an Eric Coriel downfield type guy. And when you sort of look at how they ended last season, you look at how, you know, their offense operated under, you know, Phillip Rivers, who struggled in the downfield passing game last year. You know, I think they do sort of want to have some vertical elements. And Justin Herbert's arm is a good fit for that kind of offense. So I think the Chargers, if they decide to take a quarterback at six, Herbert's a good fit for what they do. Uh, yes, uh, there's been a buzz about uh, the Chargers being interested in Herbert for quite a while since so going back to the Cedar Bowl. So that is a possibility to look out for on draft night. What about Jordan Love? You mentioned the Colts. Any other fits aside from Indy? You know, the Colts, I think that would be a good fit for them for sort of a, a coaching and developmental fit. You know, when I look at stylistically in the big arm, you know, I, I there's a reason why a lot of people thought Jacob Eason to Tampa Bay made a lot of sense. And I think you can make a similar case for Jordan Love to Tampa Bay as well. You know, the downfield passing game and the way Bruce Arian structures that with a lot of three-level reads to one side with that backside X receiver and that three-by-one formation giving you that sort of post route or that over route to sort of read that free safety as well if you don't like to look to the flood side. You know, that's sort of a, a route concept and a schematic component that I think Jordan Love could process and read early in his career. And so I think Tampa Bay would be a good fit for him. Uh, what about Jalen Hurts? Word has it if the Chargers don't go a quarterback at six, as a Benjamin Albright, friend of the pod and of Pro Football Network reported, they could look at Hurts at round two. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, look, there are a lot of people that sort of make the Tyrod Taylor comparison. And, and the Chargers have said that, look, we're, we're happy to roll with Tyrod. But I do think that there are stylistic components to both Jalen Hurts' game and to Tyrod Taylor's game that are fascinating. You know, I also look at, interestingly enough, I think Hurts is schematically diverse where that air raid type of system, that downfield system could work. You know, he throws with good touch. But I do think that a team like the Las Vegas Raiders, you know, it is obviously more of a West Coast offense. But I think in that setting, he'd have time to sort of develop a little bit, obviously with Carr and Mariota in front of him. But he has also the athleticism that I think they sort of are looking for at that position. Obviously, when you go out and get a guy like Marcus Mariota, I think Hurts is pretty diverse. 
But I, I think, you know, the Chargers make sense. The Bucks make sense if they decide, look, we're going to address quarterbacks, say, sometime on day two, get perhaps our quarterback for our post-Brady world. I think he would make some sense there as well. And since the Bears are unlikely to go quarterback early, what is the best possible landing spot for Jake Fromm? I mean, I do think New England would be a good environment for him. Um, I do think that if the Colts decide that we're not going to go quarterback early, we traded out of 13, and now we've got picks of 34 and 44, and we want to address other things, you know, maybe that pick at 44, maybe one of their later picks on day three, you know, the pick they have at 75, for example, those might be good spots for Jake Fromm, because I think that West Coast offense that Frank Reich loves to run, they do a lot of stuff off play action, they do a lot of stuff off of 12 and 13 offensive personnel, where you're getting the tight ends, you're showing run and giving that play action look to a defense. And the fact that, look, he'd be playing eight of his games in a controlled, sterile environment like Lucas Oil Stadium, where New England might have concerns about the hand size, that might not be as much of a factor you know, when you're looking at Jake Fromm, especially in the AFC South where you know, you know your road games are Jacksonville and Tennessee and Houston with some nice weather to, to, to play in. And so I think Indianapolis might be an ide- ideal setting for Jake Fromm. And last but not least, uh, Jacob Eason. Any other potential fits aside from uh, Tampa? You know, Tampa is a good one for Eason. I do like the idea of him in Tennessee. You know, they just signed Tannehill. But if they decide, look, this is a team that doesn't have a ton of needs right now. You know, they seem to be willing to run it back. They bring Tannehill back. They give him the extension. They give Derrick Henry the franchise tag. Maybe they address edge, perhaps, at 29. They also perhaps have a need at the cornerback spot. But if you get into the second round and Eason's sort of lingering out there, you know, he's somebody that also gives you that sort of, you know, back to the defense, play action type stuff, can operate under center. And a lot of people have made the Ryan Tannehill comparison, you know, for Jacob Eason. And so when you look at the fact that they're, Going in on Ryan Tannehill, if they decide that they want to hedge their bets on that, why not get a guy that's been comp to the guy you just all went all in on? Indeed. He is Mark Schofield, ladies and gentlemen, USA Today, Touchdown Wire. Thank you once again, Mark, for joining us. And that's it for today here on Sports Crutch. We'll be back with more of our 2020 Dash of the Draft series very, very soon. So stay tuned. But in the meantime, be sure to check out the episode archive as well as my blog at sportscrunch.com. And remember, that is Crunch with a K. And if you enjoy these podcast episodes, please consider leaving us an iTunes review and donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash sportscrunch so we can improve our iTunes ranking and afford to produce even more shows with awesome guests like like Mark. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at dcrom 59 For Mark Schofield, this is David Cromwell saying so long, stay awesome, stay healthy, stay home, and wash those hands. Thank you very much, everybody. Mm-hmm.